Hello, and welcome back to Speaking Startup, Missouri Business Alert's podcast covering the news and issues important to Missouri entrepreneurs. I'm Seth Bodine. And I'm Isabel Robles. First, we will hear this week's headlines. Then we will have an interview with Kelsey Ryan, the creator of Beacon, a nonprofit news organization launching in Kansas City. After that, you'll hear my story about efforts to boost maker businesses in Columbia's business loop. And then you will hear our digits, the important numbers this week in entrepreneurial news. So, Seth, I have a question. I'm wondering, if you had $6.5 billion, oh my gosh. we'll get back to that later, but if you had $6.5 billion, what is the first thing you would buy? So essentially, oh. if you had money at your disposal, what would be the first thing you would buy? Hmm. Maybe I would, I would donate to my, my <laughs> local NPR station. Ooh, <laughs> that's a good one. What would I, you do? I would pay off college. Oh, yeah. That's important. Mm-hmm. And then probably a trip. I would, I would buy a trip for my family and I to go to... You could buy a little island? Yeah. That'd be cool. Well, so why, why are you asking this? Well, later we're going to talk a little bit about SoftBank, which is a Japanese conglomerate and a certain sum of money, $6.5 billion, that they might have lost. Ooh, yikes. Yikes. But we'll get back to that later. So we should get to the news. Yeah, let's do it. Divi Homes, a Silicon Valley real estate startup, plans to open an office in the St. Louis area. This comes weeks after the company raised $43 million in a funding round. The startup aims to increase home ownership by purchasing homes for customers in a rent-to-own arrangement. Divi also announced new locations in Dallas and Tampa, Florida, which the company said will make its platform available to more than 13 million additional people. St. Louis-based Arch Grants awarded $50,000 apiece to 20 startups in its newest cohort. As a part of the award, the companies will operate out of St. Louis for a year at minimum. Half the companies in the cohort are St. Louis-based, and this year's cohort also includes one international company. Arch Grants announced that next year it will be extending awards to 25 companies. According to the organization, Arch Grants have raised $239 million in follow-on capital, and the companies in their cohort have created 1,800 jobs since its start in 2012. A rent technology startup in Kansas City just raised $4.75 million in funding. The company Simplify makes payment software to help multifamily property owners reduce expenses. The rate covers core expenses like advertising and office payroll, all done through one medium. Simplify currently operates more than 500 multifamily units in Kansas City and is on track to support 3,000 units by the end of 2020. Kelsey Ryan believes there's a gap in the news ecosystem that needs to be filled. She has a plan and some funding to do just that. Ryan is the founder of The Beacon, a nonprofit news organization that will cover local in-depth stories in the Kansas City region. Before starting The Beacon, Ryan worked as an investigative reporter for newspapers. Over her career, she said she's seen about half of newspaper reporters lose their jobs. Last August, she joined the ranks of laid-off newspaper reporters when she lost her job at the Kansas City Star. 
Ryan says the way people want information is changing, and print media has not caught up with that change. Reporter Rashi Shavasava visited with Ryan about her company, which is in its initial phases and set to launch at the beginning of next year. So um, what motivated you to create your own nonprofit journalism organization? I've grown up in this region and I care about this region and we need journalism here too. And we need strong journalism here and a various, uh, a varied news ecosystem is, is the term. And so I knew about how other places were starting um, a nonprofit news that was focused on uh, local and regional and thought we should do that here as well. So I started doing a lot of research and basically calling up other people who have started these, interviewing them, looking at their 990 tax forms. I think the biggest misconception for a lot of people is that nonprofit news is is not really a business model, it's a tax status. Um, you know, you still have to make money, you still have to have a business plan, you can't be reliant on just grants and foundations in perpetuity. And so to me, this this last year has really been kind of getting a mini MBA, uh, if you will. Yeah. yeah. So um, why do you think investigative journalism is important, and especially in the Midwest? Real investigative journalism is, is, is a slow process um, and a methodical process. I'm using the word uh, in depth, but to me, all journalism is important and serves this, you know, fundamental core of our democracy because, you know, we live in this world where now you know about Notre Dame burning within minutes, um, but you don't know about, you know, what's going on in your own city council meeting. And those are the things that really impact us far more uh, than some of the national headlines. Um, And so with the Beacon, you know, we're going to be focusing on local reporting and original reporting, not just aggregation, which has unfortunately really um, filled in a lot of the the news cycle. And what that does is it gives people kind of a, one, a warped sense of perspective, and two, they're just not as informed um, of what's actually happening in their in their community that actually affects them so um, our goal is to kind of help fill that gap um, and to kind of bring something new to this uh, to this region yeah interesting Um, so the latest news for the beacon is that it was selected to receive funding from the google news initiative innovation challenge and can you tell me a little bit more about what that is and how does that benefit the beacon So uh, I think we were one of 34 folks selected throughout North America. Basically, it was a a long process uh, to do it. I think I wrote the grant back in July, I think. And basically, it's going toward audience development, research, but also um, launch events and marketing and kind of getting the business side of the beacon secure um, as we go through a soft launch uh, yeah. So what other organizations has the Beacon partnered with or is receive, receiving funding or support from? So uh, the Kauffman Foundation um, has, has generously uh, approved a grant, uh, as has Google News Initiative, um, the Enid and Crosby Kemper uh, Foundation, and uh, the Gattermeyer Family Foundation are among some of the uh, more local um, funders at this point. 
Right. What is the revenue? What What are the various revenue st streams for the beacon? I know you mentioned advertising, uh, advertisements and grants. Um, but is there anything else that you haven't touched on yet? Yeah. So, um, you know, in the beginning, as we're doing our startup phase, of course, and, and being a nonprofit, we're wanting to utilize grants from, you know, foundations and individuals and, you know, individual donations, essentially to be our startup funding. And so one of the board members kind of, he kind of describes it as priming the pump, right? So we need to get, it's a chicken egg problem. We need to get content out there, but you can't get content and stories out there until you can pay for reporters. So um, essentially, you know, it's like, okay, well, how do you do that? So we are looking for those kind of funders to help us kind of get launched. And then the idea is that over the next several years, we transition. And so more and more of our revenue comes from a membership model, kind of similar to NPR. So the core product is still free and available to the public, which helps us, you know, uh, meet our democratic uh, mission. And then, um, you know, we'll look at distribution models to supplement print reporting as well. So maybe there's a newspaper that wants to run our story and, we, you know, they can they can do that with our permission. And, and if there's a revenue stream there, we might explore that. Events as well. The Texas Tribune is, is kind of a leader in this area, uh, doing engagement events and content related events. What we're looking at with our budget is, I think it's about 80% uh, goes straight to reporters and journalists and helping them, you know, do the job of, of going out there and getting the stories. So um, in your opinion, what is the biggest problem the media industry is facing right now? And how do you think an entrepreneurial mindset can help solve it? Oh, gosh, that's a big question. <laughs> the last thing I want to do is tell people what to think. I just want to give them the facts about what's going on. Um, and that's one of the things, you know, for us is, you know, we're not going to be doing editorials. I think there's always a good, you know, there's good, there's good written editorials out there, but there's a lot of opinions out there and not enough fact. And, um, you know, when half the newspaper reporters across their country have lost their jobs, there's so many things that aren't being covered uh, that people need to know that affect them. And so that to me is the greater need than telling people what to think through opinion pieces. So, um, so that's what we're going to do. Um, so yeah, I think trust and building relationships, I know that sounds kind of squishy, um, are actually probably, that's probably the biggest problem in media. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess the, the entrepreneurial mindset is just being able to be flexible, right? Um, and to try new things. And if they don't work, you know, why didn't they work? And then how can we build off of that? Or how can we start from scratch and being able to do that, be nimble? I think that's really important. And so we have got to understand that this is a, a two-way street for communication with people and with audiences. And so I think that's a really important thing to do. And I think that applies to business. I mean, generally, mm -hmm. I think, you know, most people doing services or products out there or whatever have got to understand that like, you know, this is not a one-way transaction. It has to go both ways and that you have to get feedback from people and you have to be able to pivot and to move forward and to sometimes push yourself into areas you're not familiar with so that you can survive and, you know, succeed and, you know, sustain, so.
So, Seth, you met with Carrie Gartner, right? I did. Uh, Gartner is the executive director of the Loop Community Improvement District. Okay, so what is the Loop and what does Carrie do? Well, it's the historic business Loop in Columbia. And part of Gartner's job is to find ways to bring in new businesses and entrepreneurs. So what do they have upcoming? Gartner says the Loop CID recently received two national grants. One of them in particular is an Etsy maker grant for $40,000. And she says it fits into the Loop's maker legacy. Basically, a maker is someone who makes things on a small scale. I talked to Gartner about her ideas about makers and the steps going forward to develop the business loop. I've noticed that a lot of this redevelopment um, has been been focused on makers. There's been a mini maker fair and um, the recent Etsy grant for $40,000. Why the focus on makers? Well, we looked at the street itself, and we have a lot of kind of DIY service centers, fix-it places. So you can get your car fixed here, you can buy tools, you could get home improvement um, equipment and materials. So it kind of fit, the whole idea of small-scale manufacturing or makers, fit with what the street was doing already. So the whole idea is if you're going to do economic development, how do you maintain the character of the street? And that was one way we saw that we could keep the street what it was, which was, you know, folks coming in with work boots and Carhartts and and getting stuff done and finding a niche that really wasn't covered by any other area in town. And so that's how we really looked at makers and manufacturers as a way to really enhance what we were doing. What kind of businesses are being attracted to the Loop right now? So we're talking to a lot of folks right now who are incubating their own business or are small businesses. Um, so we've got two great projects coming on board. We're working to put a shared commercial kitchen at Mizzou North. And MAC, Mobiliar Community College, is working on putting a shared makerspace here at Parkade Plaza. So these are all ways that we can pull in these small, you know, maybe one or two-person businesses um, to the loop, give them a place that really um, is affordable. They don't have to buy the equipment. They don't have to buy the stoves, the ovens, the woodworking machines. And they can come here and locate a business um, for a relatively low cost. When looking at the loop CID, has there been, or development plans, has has there been any other development efforts in other communities that, that the loop has based their, their own projects and development ideas on? And that's a great question. And and we were really inspired by a couple things. One was the work that um, existing property owners had already done on the business loop. Parkade Plaza is a great example. Transformed a, an empty kind of failing mall into a really an educational and retail center. Um, so that was inspiring. We're also looking to other cities. Uh, for instance, if you look at Knoxville, they have... They also received both of the national grants that we did, although in a previous funding round. So we're kind of looking at them to say, okay, what have you done and and what have you done right? And and where can we just pretty much, you know, steal your ideas? (laughs) So I I think the, the biggest things are shared spaces. How do we make it affordable for people who may not have access to family wealth or a relationship with a bank? Um, maybe don't have a huge income. How do we find spaces that are affordable 
um, for them to locate in. So we've toured maker spaces in other cities. We've toured a lot of commercial kitchens in other cities to see how can we shoulder some of the costs and use this as an incubator. Um, and those have been, I think, the most inspiring um, trips we've taken to other cities. And let's just back up a second. Um, can you tell me about the national grant that you've you've gotten and kind of the, the grants that are supporting these efforts? Absolutely. So we actually did receive two grants. We received one last year, which we were one of six communities in the nation to receive um, a, a Smart Growth America EDA grant to really identify and, and locate small-scale manufacturers on the street as a way to is place-based redevelopment. How do we redevelop an area? That um, was super successful in really getting a lot of community support behind us and really introducing us to a lot of these makers and producers. The second one, the Etsy MasterCard grant, um, was the most recent one. We were one of five cities in the nation to be named in an Etsy maker city. Um, we got $40,000 cash for a year-long program to really um, do the next step to support these makers and producers and creatives. And, and that's just begun. Um, but what we're really looking at is how do we do some marketing um, and branding of um, makers in Columbia, Missouri? How do we brand the loop? How do we advertise? And, and how do we do, for instance, um, educational workshops to to teach people how to take their business to the next level? Or how do we do a maker fair, which really gets, um, or a pop-up to really get these makers in front of the community? Who are, who are some of these makers? That's a great question. So when we first started talking about small-scale manufacturing, we really had to take um, some time to explain what that meant. So a lot of them are food producers. So if somebody's roasting coffee or brewing beer or they're distilling whiskey or they're um, making jelly and, and, and canning it, um, those are all small manufacturers. We also have um, a lot of um, creative types. Uh, people who work with textiles, material, people who build uh, furniture or cabinetry, um, people who do uh, metalworking or laser cutting, um, they design garments, uh, leather bags. So it's all sorts of manufacturing that's often hand or limited machine tools. Um, and there's just this creative aspect to it. They're doing batch production, which means they're making multiples of the same thing, but they're still very uh, creative and very hands-on in the in the process. You mentioned uh, making food. Is that where the, the community uh, kitchen comes in? Absolutely. Uh, we did a, a series of roundtables and town halls, and we talked to a lot of people. And without a doubt, what they said is, we need a commercial kitchen. There are a lot of um, caterers, there's food trucks, there's there's farmers who are doing value-added products. There are people who are making pickles or jam or, or lotions and potions, and they all need a kitchen uh, to work out of, to expand. They might be doing something in their home. They might be going in at 3 in the morning to a restaurant kitchen. Uh, nobody wants to do that. <laughs> they... we. They really cried out for a kitchen, so we're really trying to meet that need. Has there, has there been any um, particular success stories within the Loop uh, so far? 
So we're still working on getting people space and, and getting um, people located in spaces. I think the biggest thing I can say right now is that people have come out of the woodwork saying, hey, I'm making something and I need help. Um, so we already have a list of people interested in the kitchen. We have some folks that are interested in Max Makerspace. So I think the buzz um, in Colombia shows that we really hit a nerve. There's There's been a lot of people who are very creative in making things um, that haven't had a space or haven't had the support. So we're very excited about that. We, we already have had one um, Makers Fair, which was very successful. We're doing another one um, beginning of December, just in time for the holidays. So we're getting the buzz going. We've got the makers. What we're really looking for is the space at this point. What do you think are the biggest challenges facing the loop right now? Uh, the biggest challenge we have is absolutely space. I have more people who need space than I have space. Um, and and part and parcel of that is how do you keep space affordable? Uh, once an area takes off, it rents often go up. So the question is, how do we ensure that that we still have spaces that are affordable for people who may not have a lot of funding or who've been really left out of the system because they don't have that funding? So if we really want to take folks who have a, a wonderful skill and raise them up into um, a position where they're supporting themselves with that skill, how do we make sure that they're not priced out of the market? Um, that's why we're starting with these shared spaces so that we can come um, right out of the blocks very intentionally saying we're here um, for everyone and we want everyone to feel welcome and feel that they can afford this um, rather than coming out of the blocks with something that's just beyond the scope of some folks. And now it's time to share our digits, the numbers that matter to you in entrepreneur news. What are your digits this week, Seth? My number is 14. That is the number of years since SoftBank last reported a quarterly loss. Oh, dang. Right. And they just reported a loss this week of $6.5 billion. The Japanese conglomerate, which owns Sprint, has invested in startups like Uber and WeWork. So what does this all have to do with startups here in Missouri? Well, bear with me here. SoftBank has its vision fund, a venture capital fund of more than $100 billion. And it's been making big bets on startups like Uber, WeWork, and Kansas City's own C2FO. But many of the fund's biggest investments haven't paid off. Hmm. So what does that mean for SoftBank's investment strategy in the future? Well, SoftBank is working on raising another big fund that's expected to be bigger than the $100 billion vision fund. That would mean more big investments in more startups. So stay tuned. Isabel, what is your digit? 200 plus. That's the number of events that are occurring in Kansas City for Global Entrepreneurship Week, which is November 18th through November 22nd. As the name suggests, the week will involve events focused on entrepreneurship and takes place all around the world. Kansas City is a hub for the event and will have speakers talking about everything from how to develop a pitch to self-care for the entrepreneur. And to finish out the podcast, we will share with you some advice with this week's closing thought. 
That's where we ask entrepreneurs about the best piece of advice they've received and how they've applied it to their work. Here is Kelsey Ryan again. So I think I heard, and it's probably a cliche, I don't know. Somebody said, take time to work on your business, not in your business. Mm -hmm. And I've really kind of done that in the last year. Um, I haven't really written a whole lot of stories. Um, I've spent so much time applying those skills to the model and the research and then the networking and execution. And I think that was really good advice because if I had come at this and just said, well, I'm just going to keep doing stories and put them on the internet, you know, like a blog, basically, we wouldn't be to where we are now. And so I think that's kind of a, hopefully that's something that can translate to other people. But I did take a step back from kind of doing that daily work, of course, so that I could look more at the bigger picture and, and, you know, be an architect of something bigger. And that's all for this week. This has been Speaking Startup from Missouri Business Alert. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by Isabel Robles and me, Seth Bodine. Our theme music was produced by Elliot Bowman. We'll speak to you next week. Talk about daylight savings time. I like it. Not a good deal in my eyes. I know, because sometimes I wake up at really late in the day, and then... (laughs) Doesn't change anything for you. (laughs) Well, I guess it's it's darker earlier. Yeah. So I feel like I just become more nocturnal. It's like 5 p.m., and I think it's midnight, and I just get tired. (laughs) I I get tired so easily. But especially during that save. That was not. That was actually not. That was an actual yawn. <laughs> How did I predict that you were going to yawn? You were like, <laughs> talking uh, about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>